I want to start this episode by taking a look behind the scenes of this podcast. I sat down with my colleague, Dr. Bea Lefkowitz, the director of the Refugee Voices Project. Among other things, Bea herself actually conducted many of the interviews that we hear. There's one interview in particular. The family uh, took him to a farm and he was left there as a farmhand and worked as a laborer. And in fact, he had to escape. He had but to I'll give you an example. So, for example, one of our interviewees who came on the kinder transport was fostered by Clement Attlee, who was at that time the labor leader. And that's a fact I, have, I didn't know about, and it's not documented, and it comes up, example, it came up in an interview. Um, you know, in one of my Austrian interviews, an uh, interview mentions, yes, you know, we didn't go out much, but I went to see a film with Shirley Temple. And interestingly enough, that Shirley Temple film comes up in quite a few experience of interviewing many kinder transportees. It seems that when people stay together in a group, it was actually easier for them, let's say on a farm or in a hostel, um, that that was easier if they had some other children from a similar background. There are dozens of interviews that Bea and her team have recorded that we don't get to feature here. There are just too many of them. Somebody I interviewed recently, a 96-year-old lady, you know, who said that she came uh, as a kinder transportee to be fostered. And in fact, she had to work. She didn't get enough food. Um, she suffered malnutrition. And uh, she, somebody helped her to escape, I mean, to leave the family. And the lady of the house refused to give her the suitcase, which belonged to her, and wrote to the home office complaining. So the challenge then is to try to give you, the listener, some sense of a typical experience for a child refugee who came to Britain on the kinder transport. That is far from straightforward. There wasn't one typical experience. Bea explains that there were so many different factors that might influence where a particular child might live and what that experience would be like for them. You know, some people, of course, they arrived in different ages. So, of course, your experience would be very different if you were a six-year-old person, a boy, a girl, or a 15-year-old. Some of the older ones were fostered for a little bit, but then came into hostels um, and had to start work. So, you know, that's a big difference. Some people came uh, and just could continue schooling. Some people were not allowed to continue their schooling. Some people went to foster parents where they were quite happy and stayed with one family. Other people changed foster parents and were not happy. You know, so there's a, a broad range um, of experiences. Some people Remember, Bea is an oral historian, and this whole podcast is based on the idea that we can hear a unique perspective on the kinder transport by listening to the voices of the refugees themselves. But what conclusions did these voices help us to arrive at? I suppose this isn't just a behind-the-scenes look at how this podcast is constructed, but how history is constructed. What do we make of these divergent experiences. I said back in episode four that our story of the kinder transport would become increasingly complex and messy. Now, we find ourselves right in the middle of that mess.
Welcome to Kinder Transport, Remembering and Rethinking, a production of the Association of Jewish Refugees. I'm your host, Alex Maws. On this podcast, we make use of the AJR's Refugee Voices Archive, video testimonies from more than 250 Jewish refugees of Nazism, to shed light on one particular strand of the refugee experience, the Kinder Transport. You can learn more about the Refugee Voices Archive and find bonus content for each episode of this podcast at ajrrefugeevoices.org.uk. Episode 6, Against the Backdrop of War. Ursula Gilbert's story highlights how unstable, how unpredictable the refugee children's lives in Britain could be. And I knew a lot about the Jewish religion, and I was quite aware of it. They're very, you know, sort of orthodox Jews. And But it happened that on many occasions he came down and he criticized me, and I've never forgotten one morning he said to me, you're like an animal, like a horse, he said, you know, who sits down and eats breakfast and doesn't say a prayer and you don't ever pray, etc. And there were little things I did wrong in his eyes, and they didn't have another book, only the prayer book and a cookery book, and There was nothing there that we found, you know, common ground we could discuss. What Ursula is describing here is how upon her arrival in Britain, she was at first fostered by a family. That is certainly one fairly typical experience. And as you can hear, it wasn't a very good match. While stories like these weren't necessarily the majority experience, they certainly weren't uncommon either. But the reason why Ursula felt so unwelcome in her first foster home is not what most people might expect. You might expect to hear about Jewish children coming to Britain and being placed in homes that were not sufficiently prepared to accommodate their Jewish lifestyle, eating kosher food, observing the Sabbath, those sorts of things. But in Ursula's case, it was the opposite. This is actually not uncommon. Even though she herself was Jewish, she found herself placed in the home of an Orthodox Jewish family who were so strictly observant that they were unable or unwilling to accommodate her less observant lifestyle. It wasn't that she was too Jewish. It's that she wasn't, in their eyes at least, sufficiently Jewish. So then Ursula moved in with another family, this time in Brighton, where she was happier, but only for a short while. Then a job training opportunity arose in London, and she moved into the first of a series of hostels that she would stay in. Well, a normal day in the hostel, in the first hostel, we all had duties, the washing and the ironing and the cooking. That was again at Mrs. Gaynor's hostel. That was all very nice and very friendly and very organized. And, you know, that was no hardship at all. In the Glucksmann's hostel, it was a much larger hostel. And it was a dirtier hostel. It wasn't so friendly and it wasn't so nice. And the, you know, Mrs. Glucksmann, she didn't care about the, the girls much. You know, her inter, she had two children. She had two sons and a, do- and a daughter. 
and uh, they lived with her upstairs. It was a different world, you know, you go and where she lived. It was, you know, a very great difference. And uh, you've probably never lived with girls together like that. It's amazing, you know, when, when they're all together, you know, they do things together. And that time they had a lot of Spaniards in in the Bel- in, in Belsize Park and all that. She was all concerned, you know, don't go out with the with the Spaniards and don't do this and don't do that and you were f- uh, not allowed to do this. Uh, it wasn't a very happy time, but somehow, you know, it's... Group living arrangements like these were also very common for child refugees. But as we see already in Ursula's story, it wasn't necessarily an either-or situation. Some children moved from one type of accommodation to another, sometimes quite regularly. At the age of 15, Ursula began working as a trainee milliner. For our younger listeners, that's a hat maker. Just before the war, about six six weeks or even less than six weeks, I had a trainee permit to learn millinery. Millinery was something considered my parents and I, you know, I could use my hands and perhaps it's a nice job to have. You try and learn millinery and I have a trainee permit now. And I stayed there until war broke out on the 3rd of September. That was on a Sunday. On on the Monday morning, uh, we were all, all the people who worked at this particular company all got together in the in the workroom and said, well, you know, the manageress came and talked to us and said, you know, sort of war broken out, and as you know, etc. And the long and the short of it is we've got one German person here amongst us, that's Ursula over there, and she has to go. And we, I was dismissed on the spot. That was Monday morning because Ursula was German as far as they were concerned. And just like that, her prospects as a trainee milliner were over. Why? Because Ursula was, wait for it, German. So far in this series, we have mainly been focusing on the transport itself, on the process of getting the unaccompanied Jewish children from Nazi-occupied Europe to Britain, on the arrangements that needed to be made in order to find places for them to live, and then what their initial impressions were upon first arrival. These are all important parts of the story of the kinder transport. But eventually, this whirlwind of activity all of the springing into action, all of the urgent appeals settled down. Unfortunately, the reason this phase of the kinder transport settled down was because on the 1st of September, 1939, Germany invaded Poland. And in response, on the 3rd of September, Britain declared war. I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently 
this country is at war with Germany. Obviously, the outbreak of war had more repercussions than we can possibly get into here. But what did it mean for the kinder transport? Well, most significantly, the transports themselves stopped, for the most part anyway. There would still be groups of children who would arrive as late as 1940 from the Netherlands. But as for the main origin countries that children came from, Germany, Austria, Czechoslovakia, and Poland, the reluctant cooperation of the Nazis to enable children to leave these places was now over. Thousands of children who had been put onto lists for future transports would never make that passage. One train with 250 children aboard that was due to depart Prague on the 3rd of September never left the platform. The ending of the kinder transports themselves is not the end of the kinder transport story by any stretch. Back in Britain, the nearly 10,000 children who had already arrived, like Ursula Gilbert, tried to make the best of their situation in lots of different ways, with the knowledge that they were now officially cut off from their families for the foreseeable future. Settling in meant dealing with the same wartime challenges as the rest of the British population. For example, Ursula remembers rationing. I'm not quite sure how it came about, but soon after then, I, I was taken to a hostel in Wilson Lane. And as far as I remember, this hostel in Wilson Lane was run by Benny Brith. Because when bro- war broke out later on, we had two two committee ladies, we called them, who were in charge of us. And this committee lady got us all together and said, war broken out, we've got to, you know, economize and we haven't got this anymore. For instance, you know, they couldn't afford any kosher meat, so we eat vegetables and a lot of other things we can't afford anymore, you know. And we've got to, you know, sort of act accordingly. In addition to food rationing, Ursula also endured another very common British wartime experience. Once the Blitz began in 1940, she, along with more than a million other children living in London, were told to evacuate the city. This was all very well until we were bombed out. And I think we were bombed out in 1941. And it was uh, rather bad. You know, we were bombed out and we had, you know, the, the... door, I think the cellar door was smashed in and we had to wait till the air raid warden came and dug us out and we were taken to a station where there were a lot of injured injured soldiers and we were all got together and we were told anybody who's got relatives here they've got to go and get in touch with their relatives and go to their relatives. So it seems like a cruel twist of fate, doesn't it? as though it weren't already enough of a challenge to be an unaccompanied Jewish refugee child trying to find a workable living situation in this new, sometimes hostile country. To think that thousands of those children then had to flee yet again, under very different circumstances, because of a different kind of danger, 
but still. Other refugees, typically boys who were older than 14 and therefore seen as a lower priority for placement in foster homes, found themselves in a range of other situations. Although they may have come from cosmopolitan European cities, many of the children were offered places to stay and to work on farms dotted across the British countryside. Henry Wuga came from a well-to-do family in Nuremberg, Germany. He was 15 years old when he came on a kinder transport and was initially taken in and looked after by the Jewish community in Glasgow. When the war began, he was evacuated to a farm. So I was an evacuee for the second time, yes? We went to school, we were put into a gas mask and, and a little case. We were put on a train to Perth, and I ended up on a farm, on a farm near Perth. Fantastic. I mean, you talk about wartime, yes? It was quite traumatic. War had broken out. Now, that I remember, war breaking out. That was not, not so good. Policemen came in any case. I went to this farm. I was evacuated to that farm. And there was no shortage of food. There were pheasants, there was milk, and there was cream, and they had two children, also my age. And I, I learned to deal with horses and plowing. And then the potato harvest came, potato hawking, which in these days, Irish teams came to the farm to lift the potatoes. It was marvelous. And I went to the local, the local village school, but that didn't, that didn't go so well. The education authorities thought. We have to do something about this. Henry's time on the farm was mostly positive. Others, like Rudolf Goldberg, had a much more traumatic experience in these types of arrangements. The first farm I worked on in Derbyshire it was a really rotten place and I asked to be moved. And the woman was really quite nasty, like, you know, and she didn't look after me very well because I lived in on the farm. I never had a bath or nothing. There was nothing there. I mean, whatever luxuries were on the farm, they were reserved for the farm. I mean, farm workers didn't have a bath, you know. For Rudolf, it wasn't only the feeling that he was being exploited. It was also the sheer loneliness. And you see, that's how I came to learn English, which was the best way, because I was plunked onto a farm in the middle of Derbyshire, in the middle of England, in the middle of the war, and, you know, it was a case of sink or swim. I've been fun, very fond of reading. So the only way I could read anything is pick up an English book, English paper. Nobody spoke German for hundreds of miles around. Nobody would even dare to speak German, you know, in those days. And that was it. It was lonely in a while, like, you know, but I used to get up at six in the morning and work all hours, every hour, Saturday, Sunday. I might get a couple hours off on a Sunday afternoon, an hour or two at night, but most of the time it's just work, work, work. Girls were exploited too, not as farm workers, but very commonly as domestic servants. 
Bessie Barnett remembers her first placement with a family who took her in, not out of a sense of compassion, but because they wanted a maid. First thing I came in, Ed, she said, you put this own uniform on, a pleck schmatter, it was pleck dress, and it smelled, it was awful. I said, not going to wear that. I said, I'm not going to wear that. He said, all the girls wear that when they work here. I said, I said, I don't mind wearing your apron, but I'm not wearing this. I did that. It's horrible. I'm wearing my own clothes. And the work I had to do that was terrible. We had to do all the washing at home and you had to boil it in the boiler. And he, he was a solicitor and they, every three shirts every day and he had to wash them and iron, starch them and iron them out. It was such a lot of work to do that. It was Monday was all day long wash day, you know, and, uh, and there was no help. And I did all the, all the lunches at the suppers, you know, and make the meals in the night. I had to wash up, you know, and he only had half a day once a, once a week or once a fortnight, I think. That's all there was. Bessie came from a religious family in Germany and had attended a Jewish school. Moreover, she was 16 years old when she came to London on a kinder transport, so her religious customs were pretty ingrained and pretty important to her, like not working on Shabbat, the Jewish Sabbath. Usually on Shabbat, I used to walk all the way from Goldescreen up to North London to visit my brothers and my friends. And uh, and I stayed there, I stayed there until she'd asked me on Shabbat to, to light a fire. I said, no, I'm not lighting fires on Shabbat. I said, I'm Jewish. She said, the other girl was Jewish. I said, it does make no difference. The other girls that I... She said, but you got, can't do it before you're ill. I said, you're not ill. You're only pregnant. Remember earlier in the episode when Ursula Gilbert, who was more of a secular Jew, described her struggle adapting to a family who were strictly religious? Bessie Barnett's situation here is the opposite. She refused to light a fire on Shabbat in keeping with Jewish religious custom, but the family for whom she was put to work tried to insist that she did. Marga Brody recalls her experience as a domestic servant. Well... When I went to, to introduce myself, uh, Hilda took me in, and, and Mrs. Green said, she said, you, you come and live with us, part of the family. And she said, he was a doctor. Said, Can you answer the phone? I said, yes. I speak English by then, more or less. So she said, you answer the phone for the doctor, and he helped me to dust a little bit. She said, of I've got a cleaning lady and I've got a washerwoman. Oh, sounds wonderful, yeah. Life of Riley. But I wasn't there more than three weeks when she sacked the washerwoman. She said, I don't know why you can't do the washing. And then she sacked the job. <laughs> and I worked very hard there for a pound a week. Um, and uh, till I put my foot down. Eventually, she had a daughter who was married and had a baby. And she said to me, should wash the baby's nappies? I said, sorry. I said to her, if your daughter would live with my mother, she said she wouldn't ask her to wash the nappies. I said, I'm not going to wash the nappies. She was younger than I was. I mean, she got married when she was 17. So I said she could wash her own nappies. 
Britain was at war with Nazi Germany. On the British home front, this meant rationing, farm and factory workers being conscripted, leaving a glut of work, women who weren't already employed going to work, fear of bombs, fear of Germans. Meanwhile, against this backdrop, those children who had been rescued up to that point were now dispersed across the country certainly cut off from their families back home, and often to some degree cut off from their refugee peers as well, peers who at least provided some sense of familiarity and comfort. Some refugee children helped to fill necessary roles in British society. Some filled unnecessary roles. There were certainly incidents of neglect, but... I don't mean to suggest that there was wholesale institutionalized neglect. There was simply a lot going on for everybody to deal with. There would be no more urgent radio appeals to rally citizens to help Jewish children. Their rescue was no longer a cause celeb. It was now merely an ongoing endeavor, a constant effort on the part of thousands of young people and those who were looking after them to build a bearable life in Britain. What other choice did they have? This podcast is a production of the Association of Jewish Refugees. We are a charity supporting Holocaust refugees and survivors living in Great Britain. Learn more about our work at ajr.org.uk. Thanks to my colleague and Refugee Voices founding director, Dr. Bea Lefkowitz, and to Dr. Anthony Grenville for their support. Miriam Silverman is our researcher. Post-production by Ross Winter at Podcast Polishing. To learn more about the stories of the kinder transport refugees you heard from in this episode, please visit ajrrefugeevoices.org.uk. And once again, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, please help us to spread the word about it. And we would greatly appreciate it if you would rate us and leave a review if you can, wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs>